Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. This is Episode 9, Book 1, and I am your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. Tom's conscience is troubling him. He and Huckleberry Finn were secret witnesses to a murder, but the man who committed the dreadful deed seems to be getting away with it. Should Tom tell what he knows? But he and Huck swore a terrible oath to keep mum. Tom has to decide what to do, even at the peril of his life. To find out what happens, sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Chapter 24 At last, the sleepy atmosphere was stirred, and vigorously. The murder trial came on in the court. It became the absorbing topic of village talk immediately. Tom could not get away from it. Every reference to the murder sent a shudder to his heart, for his troubled conscience and his fears almost persuaded him that these remarks were put forth in his hearing as feelers. He did not see how he could be suspected of knowing anything about the murder, but still he could not be comfortable in the midst of this gossip. It kept him in a cold shiver all the time. He took Huck to a lonely place to have a talk with him. It would be some relief to unseal his tongue for a little while, to divide his burden of distress with another sufferer. Moreover, he wanted to assure himself that Huck remained discreet. Huck, have you ever told anybody about that? About what? You know what? Oh, course I haven't. Never a word? Never a solitary word, so help me. What makes you ask? Well, I was afeard. Why, Tom Sawyer, we wouldn't be alive two days if that got found out. You know that. Tom felt more comfortable. After a pause, Huck, they couldn't anybody get you to tell, could they? Get me to tell? Why, if I wanted that devil to drown me, they could get me to tell. They ain't no different way. Well, that's all right, then. I reckon we're safe as long as we keep mum. But let's swear again anyway. It's more sure. I'm agreed. So they swore again, with dreadful solemnities. What is the talk around, Huck? I've heard a power of it. Talk? Well, it's just muff-potter, muff-potter, muff-potter all the time. It keeps me in a sweat constant, so's I want to hide somewheres. That's just the way they go on round me. I reckon he's a goner. Don't you feel sorry for him sometimes? Most always, he ain't no account, but, but then he ain't ever done anything to hurt anybody. Just fishes a little to get money to get drunk on and loafs around considerable. But, Lord, we all do that. Leastwise, most of us. Preachers and such like. But he's kind of good. He gives me half a fish once, when there wasn't enough for two, and lots of times he's kind of stood by me when I was out of luck. Well, he's mended kites for me, Huck, and knitted hooks onto my line. I wish we could get him out of there. My, we couldn't get him out, Tom, and besides, twouldn't do any good, they'd catch him again. Yes, so they would, but I hate to hear him abuse him so like the Dickens when he never done that. 
I do too, Tom. Lord, I hear him say he's the bloodiest looking villain in this country, and they wonder he wasn't ever hung before. Yes, they talk like that all the time. I've heard him say that if he was to get free, they'd lynch him, and they'd do it too. The boys had a long talk, but it brought them little comfort. As the twilight drew on, they found themselves hanging about the neighborhood of the little isolated jail, perhaps with an undefined hope that something would happen there that might clear away their difficulties. But nothing happened. There seemed to be no angels or fairies interested in this luckless captive. The boys did as they had often done before, went to the cell grating and gave Potter some tobacco and matches. He was on the ground floor, and there were no guards. His gratitude for their gifts had always smote their consciences before. It cut deeper than ever this time. They felt cowardly and treacherous to the last degree when Potter said, You've been mighty good to me, boys, better than anybody else in this town, and I don't forget it, I don't. Often I says to myself, says I, I used to mend all the boys' kites and things and show them where the good fish and places was and befriend them when I could, and now they all forgot old Moff Potter when he's in trouble. But Tom don't, and Huck don't. They don't forget him, I says, and I don't forget them. Well, boys, I done an awful thing, drunk and crazy at the time. That's the only way I account for it, and now I got to swing for it, and it's right. Right and best, too, I reckon. Hope so, anyway. Well, we won't talk about that. I don't want to make you feel bad. You've befriended me. But what I want to say is, don't you ever get drunk. Then you won't ever get here. Stand a little further west, so. That's it. It's a prime comfort to see faces that's friendly when a body's in such a muck of trouble. And there don't none come here but yearn. Good friendly faces. Good friendly faces. Get up on one another's backs and let me touch em. That's it. Shake hands. Urine'll come through the bars, but mine's too big. Little hands and weak, but they've helped Muff Potter a power, and they'd help him more if they could. Tom went home miserable, and his dreams that night were full of horrors. The next day, and the day after, he hung about the courtroom, drawn by an almost irresistible impulse to go in, but forcing himself to stay out. Huck was having the same experience. They studiously avoided each other. Each wandered away from time to time, but the same dismal fascination always brought them back presently. Tom kept his ears open when idlers sauntered out of the courtroom, but invariably heard distressing news. The toils were closing more and more relentlessly around poor Potter. At the end of the second day, the village talk was to the effect that Injun Joe's evidence stood firm and unshaken, and there was not the slightest question as to what the jury's verdict would be. Tom was out late that night and came to bed through the window. He was in a tremendous state of excitement. It was hours before he got to sleep. All the village flocked to the courthouse the next morning, for this was to be the great day. Both sexes were about equally represented in the packed audience. After a long wait, the jury filed in and took their places. Shortly afterwards, Potter, pale and haggard, timid and hopeless, was brought in with chains upon him and seated where all the curious eyes could stare at him. No less conspicuous was Injun Joe, solid and stolid as ever. There was another pause, and then the judge arrived, and the sheriff proclaimed the opening of the court. The usual whisperings among the lawyers and gathering together of papers followed. These details and accompanying delays 
worked up an atmosphere of preparation that was as impressive as it was fascinating. Now a witness was called who testified that he found Muff Potter washing in the brook at an early hour of the morning that the murder was discovered, and that he immediately sneaked away. After some further questioning, counsel for the prosecution said, Take the witness. The prisoner raised his eyes for a moment, but dropped them again when his own counsel said, I have no questions to ask him. The next witness proved the finding of the knife near the corpse. Counsel for the prosecution said, Take the witness. I have no questions to ask him, Potter's lawyer replied. A third witness swore he had often seen the knife in Potter's possession. Take the witness. Counsel for Potter declined to question him. The faces of the audience began to betray annoyance. Did this attorney mean to throw away his client's life without an effort? Several witnesses deposed concerning Potter's guilty behavior when brought to the scene of the murder. They were allowed to leave the stand without being cross-questioned. Every detail of the damaging circumstances that occurred in the graveyard upon that morning, which all present remembered so well, was brought out by credible witnesses, but none of them were cross-examined by Potter's lawyer. The perplexity and dissatisfaction of the house expressed itself in murmurs and provoked a reproof from the bench. Counsel for the prosecution now said, By the oaths of citizens whose simple word is above suspicion, we have fastened this awful crime beyond all possibility of question upon the unhappy prisoner at the bar. We rest our case here. A groan escaped from poor Potter, and he put his face in his hands and rocked his body softly to and fro, while a painful silence reigned in the courtroom. Many men were moved, and many women's compassion testified itself in tears. Counsel for the defense rose and said, Your Honor, in our remarks at the opening of this trial, we foreshadowed our purpose to prove that our client did this fearful deed while under the influence of a blind and irresponsible delirium produced by drink. We have changed our minds. We shall not offer that plea. Then, to the clerk, call Thomas Sawyer. A puzzled amazement awoke in every face in the house, not even excepting Potter's. Every eye fastened itself with wondering interest upon Tom as he rose and took his place upon the stand. The boy looked wild enough, for he was badly scared. The oath was administered. Thomas Sawyer, where were you on the 17th of June, about the hour of midnight? Tom glanced at Injun Joe's face, and his tongue failed him. The audience listened breathless, but the words refused to come. After a few moments, however, the boy got a little of his strength back and managed to put enough of it into his voice to make part of the house hear. In the graveyard? A little bit louder, please. Don't be afraid. You were in the graveyard. A contemptuous smile flitted across Injunjo's face. Were you anywhere near Horse William's grave? Yes, sir. Speak up just a trifle louder. How near were you? Near as I am to you. Were you hidden or not? I was hid. Where? Behind the elms that's on the edge of the grave? Injun Joe gave a barely perceptible start. Anyone with you? Yes, sir. I went there with... Wait, wait a moment. Never mind mentioning your companion's name. We will produce him at the proper time. Did you carry anything there with you? Tom hesitated and looked confused. Speak out, my boy. Don't be diffident. The truth is always respectable. What did you take there? Only a... a dead cat. There was a ripple of mirth, which the court checked. 
we will produce the skeleton of that cat. Now, my boy, tell us everything that occurred. Tell it in your own way. Don't skip anything and don't be afraid. Tom began hesitatingly at first, but as he warmed to his subject, his words flowed more and more easily. In a little while, every sound ceased but his own voice. Every eye fixed itself upon him with parted lips and bated breath. The audience hung upon his words, taking no note of time, wrapped in the ghastly fascinations of the tale. The strain upon pent emotion reached its climax when the boy said, And as the doctor fetched the board around and Muff Potter fell, Injun Joe jumped with the knife and crash, quick as lightning. Injun Joe sprang for a window, tore his way through all opposers, and was gone. Chapter 25 Tom was a glittering hero once more. The pet of the old, the envy of the young. His name even went into immortal print, for the village paper magnified him. There were some that believed he would be president yet, <laughs> if he escaped hanging. As usual, the fickle, unreasoning world took Muff Potter to its bosom and fondled him as lavishly as it had abused him before. But that sort of conduct is to the world's credit, therefore it is not well to find fault with it. Tom's days were days of splendor and exultation to him, but his nights were seasons of horror. Injun Joe infested all his dreams and always with doom in his eye. Hardly any temptation could persuade the boy to stir abroad after nightfall. Poor Huck was in the same state of wretchedness and terror, for Tom had told the whole story to the lawyer the night before the great day of the trial, and Huck was sore afraid that his share in the business might leak out yet, notwithstanding Injun Joe's flight had saved him the suffering of testifying in court. The poor fellow had got the attorney to promise secrecy, but what of that? Since Tom's harassed conscience had managed to drive him to the lawyer's house by night, and wring a dread tale from his lips that had been sealed with the dismalest and most formidable of oaths, Huck's confidence in the human race was well-nigh obliterated. Daily, Muff Potter's gratitude made Tom glad he had spoken, but nightly he wished he had sealed up his tongue. Half the time, Tom was afraid Injun Joe would never be captured. The other half, he was afraid he would be. He felt sure he could never draw a safe breath again until that man was dead, and he had seen the corpse. Rewards had been offered. The country had been scoured, but no Injun Joe was found. One of those omniscient and awe-inspiring marvels, a detective, came up from St. Louis, moused around, shook his head, looked wise, and made that sort of astounding success which members of that craft usually achieve. That is to say, he found a clue. But you can't hang a clue for murder. And so after that detective had got through and gone home, Tom felt just as insecure as he was before. The slow days drifted on, and each left behind it a slightly lightened weight of apprehension. Chapter 26 There comes a time in every rightly constructed boy's life when he has a raging desire to go somewhere and dig for hidden treasure. This desire suddenly came upon Tom one day. He sallied out to find Joe Harper, but failed of success. Next, he sought Ben Rogers. He had gone fishing. Presently, he stumbled upon Huck Finn the red-handed. Huck would answer. Tom took him to a private place and opened the matter to him confidentially. 
Huck was willing. Huck was always willing to take a hand in any enterprise that offered entertainment and required no capital, for he had a troublesome superabundance of that sort of time which is not money. Where'll we dig? said Huck. Oh, most anywhere. Why is it hid all around? No, indeed it ain't. It's hid in mighty particular places, Huck, sometimes on islands, sometimes in rotten chests under the end of a limb of an old dead tree, just where the shadow falls at midnight, but mostly under the floor in haunted houses. Who hides it? Why, robbers, of course. Who'd you reckon? Sunday school superintendents? I don't know. If it was mine, I wouldn't hide it. I'd spend it and have a good time. So would I, but robbers don't do that way. They always hide it and leave it. Don't they come after it any more? No, they think they will, but generally forget the marks or else they die. Anyway, it lays there a long time and gets rusty, and by and by, somebody finds an old yellow paper that tells how to find the marks. A paper that's got to be ciphered over about a week because it's mostly signs and hieroglyphics. Hiero which? Hieroglyphics. Pictures and things, you know, that don't seem to mean anything. Have you got one of them papers, Tom? No. Well, then, how are you going to find out the marks? I don't want any marks. They always bury it under a haunted house or on an island or a dead tree that's got one limb sticking out. Well, we've tried Jackson Island a little, and we can try it again sometime, and there's the old haunted house up the still house branch, and there's lots of dead tree limbs, dead loads of them. Is it under all of them? How you talk, no. Then how are you going to know which one to go for? Go for all of them. Why, Tom, it'll take all summer. Well, what of that? Suppose you find a brass pot with a hundred dollars in it, all rusty and gay, or a rotten chest full of diamonds. How's that? Huck's eyes glowed. That's bully, plenty bully enough for me. Just you give me the hundred dollars. I don't want no diamonds. All right, but I bet you I ain't going to throw off diamonds. Some of them's worth about twenty dollars apiece. There ain't any hardly but's worth six bits or a dollar. No, is that so? Certainly anybody'll tell you so. Ain't you ever seen one, Huck? Not as I remember. Oh, kings have slathers of em. Well, I don't know no kings, Tom. I reckon you don't. But if you was going to go to Europe, you'd see a raft of em hopping around. Do they hop? Hop? Your granny, no. Why did you say they did for? Shucks, I only meant you'd see em, not hopping, of course. What do they want to hop for? But... I mean, you'd just see him scattered around, you know, in a kind of general way, like that old humpbacked Richard. Richard? What's his other name? He didn't have any other name. Kings don't have anybody given name. No? But they don't. Well, if they like it, Tom, all right, but I don't want to be a king and have only a given name. But say, where are you going to dig first? Well, I don't know. Suppose we tackle that old dead limb tree on the hill the other side of the stillhouse branch. I'm agreed. So they got a crippled pick and a shovel and set out on their three-mile tramp. They arrived hot and panting and threw themselves down in the shade of a neighboring elm to rest and have a smoke. I like this, said Tom. So do I. Say, Huck, if we find a treasure here, what are you going to do with your share? Well, I'll have a pie and a glass of soda every day, and I'll go to every circus that comes along. I'll bet I'll have a great time. Well, aren't you going to save any of it? Save it? What for? Why, so's to have something to live on by and by. Oh, 
That ain't any use. Pap would come back to this here town some day and get his claws on if I didn't hurry up, and I tell you he'd clean it out pretty quick. What are you going to do with yourn, Tom? I'm going to buy a new drum and a sure enough sword and a red necktie and a bull pup and, and get married. Married? That's it. Tom, you, why, you ain't in your right mind. Wait, you'll see. Well, that's the foolishest thing you could do, Tom. Look at Pap and my mother. Fight. Why, they used to fight all the time. I remember mighty well. That ain't anything. The girl I'm going to marry won't fight. Tom, I reckon they're all alike. They all come a body. Now you better think about this a little while. I tell you, you better. What's the name of this gal? It ain't a gal at all. It's a girl. It's all the same, I reckon. Some says gal, some says girl. Both's right, like enough. Anyway, what's her name, Tom? I'll tell you sometime. Not now. All right, that'll do. Only if you get married, I'll be more lonesomer than ever. No, you won't. You'll come and live with me. Now stir out of this and we'll go digging. They worked and sweated for half an hour. No result. They toiled another half hour. Still no result. Huck said, Do they always bury it as deep as this? Sometimes, not always. Not generally. I reckon we haven't got the right place. So they chose a new spot and began again. The labor dragged a little. But still they made progress. They pegged away in silence for some time. Finally, Huck leaned on his shovel, swabbed the beaded drops from his brow with his sleeve, and said, Where are you going to dig next after we get this one? I reckon maybe we'll tackle the old tree that's over yonder on Cardiff Hill, back on the widow's. I reckon that'll be a good one. But won't the widow take it away from us, Tom? It's on her land. She take it away? Maybe she'd like to try it once. Whoever finds one of these hid treasures, it belongs to him. It don't make any difference whose land it's on. That was satisfactory. The work went on. By and by, Huck said, Blame it. We must be in the wrong place again. What do you think? It's mighty curious, Huck. I don't understand it. Sometimes witches interfere. I reckon maybe that's what the trouble is now. Shucks. Witches ain't got no power in the daytime. Well, that's so. I didn't think of that. Oh, I know what the matter is. What a blamed lot of fools we are. You gotta find out where the shadow of the limb falls at midnight, and that's where you dig. Then Con found that we've fooled away all this work for nothing. Now hang it all, we got to come back in the night. It's an awful long way. Can you get out? I bet I will. We've got to do it tonight, too, because if somebody sees these holes, they'll know in a minute what's here, and they'll go for it. Well, I'll come around and meow tonight. All right, let's hide the tools in the bushes. The boys were there that night about the appointed time. They sat in the shadow waiting. It was a lonely place, and an hour made solemn by old traditions. Spirits whispered in the rustling leaves. Ghosts lurked in the murky nooks. The deep baying of a hound floated up out of the distance. An owl answered with his sepulchral note. The boys were subdued by these solemnities and talked little. By and by they judged that twelve had come. They marked where the shadow fell and began to dig. Their hopes commenced to rise. Their interest grew stronger and their industry kept pace with it. The hole deepened, and still deepened, but every time their hearts jumped to hear the pick strike upon something, they only suffered a new disappointment. It was only a stone or a chunk. At last Tom said, It ain't any use, Huck, we're wrong again. 
we can't be wrong. We spotted the shatter to a dot. I know it. But then there's another thing. What's that? Why, we only guessed at the time. Like enough it was too late or too early. Huck dropped his shovel. That's it, he said. It's the very trouble. We've got to give this one up. We can't ever tell the right time, and besides, this kind of thing's too awful. Here this time of night with witches and ghosts fluttering around, I feel as if something's behind me all the time and I'm afraid to turn around because maybe there's others in front awaiting for a chance. I've been creeping all over since I got here. Well, I've been pretty much so too, Huck. They most always put in a dead man when they bury a treasure under a tree to look out for it. Lordy! Yes, they do. I've always heard that. Tom, I don't like to fool around much where there's dead people. A boy's bound to get into trouble with him, sure. I don't like to stir him up either, Huck. Suppose this one here was to stick his skull out and say something. Don't, Tom, it's awful. Well, it is, just Huck. I don't feel comfortable a bit. Say, Tom, let's give this place up and try somewheres else. All right, I reckon we better. What'll it be? Tom considered a while and then said, The haunted house, that's it. Blame it, I don't like haunted houses, Tom. Why, they're a darn sight worse than dead people. Dead people might talk, maybe, but they don't come sliding around in a shroud when you ain't noticing and peep over your shoulder all of a sudden and grit their teeth the way a ghost does. I couldn't stand such a thing as that, Tom. Nobody could. Yes, but, Huck, ghosts don't travel around only at night. They won't hinder us from digging there in the daytime. Well, that's so. But you know mighty well people don't go about that haunted house in the day nor the night. That's mostly because they don't like to go where a man's been murdered anyway. But nothing's ever been seen around that house in the night. Just some blue lights slipping by the windows. No regular ghosts. Well, where you see one of them blue lights flickering around, Tom, you can bet there's a ghost mighty close behind it. It stands to reason. Because you know they don't anybody but ghosts use them. Yes, that's so. But anyway, they don't come around in the daytime. So what's the use of our being feared? Well, all right, we'll tackle the haunted house if you say so. But I reckon it's taking chances. They had started down the hill by this time. There in the middle of the moonlit valley below them stood the haunted house, utterly isolated. Its fences gone long ago, rank weeds smothering the very doorstep, the chimney crumbling to ruin, the window sashes vacant, a corner of the roof caved in. The boys gazed a while, half expecting to see a blue light flit past a window, then talking in a low tone, as befitted the time and the circumstances, they struck far off to the right to give the haunted house a wide berth and took their way homeward through the woods that adorned the rearward side of Cardiff Hill. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to the adventures of Tom Sawyer. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.